you are between the ages of four years old to the second grade, you are excused to kids club. Well, it's been mentioned a couple of times already this morning, this has been a, a challenging week for many. Whether your heart and your life was challenged by the loss of, of several young guys this week in a tragic car accident, or whether uh, your challenge is a country that decides to make legal that which the Bible really condones, it's been a challenging week for believers. In doing so, it's been challenging for me to try to figure out we put out a psalm schedule. Do I move around? Do we, do we go to something else? Should I go to Psalm 34? Should I go to Psalm 37? Should we go to Psalm 1? There's lots of places we could go and decided to stay in Psalm 30. Because the reality for all of us, for all of us, is whatever adversity or tragedy that weighs heavy on your heart this morning, there's a great reality that stands in contrast to our heaviness. And that's that God the Father is still on the throne. And his son, Jesus, will still reign forever and ever and ever. And nothing challenges that. Nothing at all. It's easy for some of us, myself included, to, to mistake my identity as an American and my identity as a Christian and want those to be more similar than they are. And, and, and just to trust the fact that God is still on his throne, he's still in control, he's still trustworthy, it's just a greater push for us to be on mission. Greater push for us to realize that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I'm the chief. So that's just kind of how I wanted to open us this morning. Is just with that thought and the reality that God is on the throne. As we've been walking through these psalms, we've subtitled this series, Songs for Real Life. Because there's something as you step into the book of Psalms that they start taking on real life. That they're prayers from real situations. There's nothing in this book that suggests life will be perfect. There's nothing in this book that suggests life will be pretty. There's nothing in this book that suggests that it's going to be awesome all the time. It, it, it walks you through these real life scenarios, these real life situations. And as we walk into Psalm 30 this morning... As you find in many psalms, you find David really discouraged and really depressed and in a hole. And, and it's fun, to, really fascinating, really, to, as you read through the psalms to see how often that seems to be the case for any number of the writers of psalms. Now, there's lots of reasons why you might find yourself in a pit of despair. Then this morning, David finds himself in a pit out of his own cause. We find David writing a song, a song of worship, and it's coming out of a season of discipline. It's actually a very fascinating and interesting psalm. And as we walk into it, I'm going to start with a, a quote as I have every week. This is Richard Schmidt, an Anglican theologian, said this, It is not that every sentiment expressed by Solomon is admirable, but in praying the psalms, we confront ourselves as we really are. The Psalms are a reality check to keep prayer from becoming sentimental, superficial, or detached from the real world. That's where we find David this morning in Psalm 30. Somebody read it for us. Psalm 30, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. 
I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from amongst those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. But by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, and you have loosed my sackcloth, and you have clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Psalm 30. It's a fascinating psalm. What makes it more fascinating to me is that it starts off with this note, a a song of the dedication of the temple. This is actually the only song, per se, that's noted this way in the first book. You may not know this. There are five books in the book of Psalms. Uh, Some Bibles denote that. Psalms 1 through 41 denote the kind of the first book. This is the only song written in it. And what's fascinating to me is that here's a song meant to be sung corporately where David is expressing a discipline that comes out of his pride and being put down to finding himself in a hole. Where that becomes interesting for us is the reality that David, in a hole, struggling in his life, writes a song and decides the whole country should worship God with this song. And it is kind of interesting. Because what you get out of it, if you step step back after reading it, and you recognize, having seen this, that our God is a God who is a great deliverer. And David wanted that to be known. That David didn't try to hide his shortcomings. He didn't try to hide his successes and his failures. David was out front to say, I blew it. And I found myself in a deep, dark place. And God carried me through. And David boasted of that. Not only did David boast of it, he wanted the whole temple, all of Judaism, to sing of how bad he blew it in this deep, dark place that God got him out of. You actually find historically that this psalm would have been sung every single year by Jewish people at the time of Hanukkah. It's this continual pronouncement of, I fall short, God is good. I fall short, God is good. I fall short, God is good. What a great message for all of us to just revel in, because that's the gospel, isn't it? It's the gospel. And as long as I'm the pastor of this church, and by the way, I plan to be here a while, as long as I'm here, that's what we're going to say. I fall short, and God is really good. He's really abundantly gracious to us. So let's walk into the psalm. When, when David says, 
when it's described as song and the dedication of the temple, you should know a couple of things. One, most of these titles in the book of Psalms actually are original to the text, meaning you can consider most of them inspired. But this particular title, Song of the Dedication of the Temple, a lot of them lead you places, and this has two possible explanations, but that lead you to the same place. First, you could see a time when David erected a tent in Jerusalem to house the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel 6, or perhaps it's a dedication of the temple site given in 1 Chronicles 21. Incidentally, it can't actually be the dedication of the temple of Solomon, because David had already died and Solomon dedicated. But in both cases, you see an extraordinary event. You see David with an, a really an extraordinary lifetime achievement event start to trust in himself, start to feel self-sufficient, start to feel like he could do it on his own, and how that led not only him, but the nation into sin. And, and the consequences that were reaped from that uh, you can read about in either Second Samuel 6 or First Chronicles 21, because it happens both times. David has a great accomplishment that's followed by pride and self-sufficiency, which leads him face first into sin. So let's walk into this psalm, and you'll note immediately that they come in, it comes in stages. It comes in phases. As, as, as David is writing to this, he, he starts with a, a statement of worship, kind of looking in hindsight. David says, I will extol you, O Lord. I will exalt you. I will worship you. I will lift high your name. For you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. You have drawn me up. It's this Hebrew word picture. It's one of the beautiful things about the Hebrew language in this poetry. They draw pictures with words. It's this picture as if he's the bucket at the bottom of a well and God is reeling him up. It's this picture that he's in this deep, dark place and God pulls him up out of it. I worship you, God, because you brought me out of this dark place and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, verse 2, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. We've walked through that in a couple of these psalms, as even Lenny alluded to. It was Chuck Swindoll who called it the great four-letter prayer of help. David finds himself in a hole, literally. An emotional literal hole. Not like a literal literal hole. Literally, it's such a fascinating word. Literally, he's in an emotional hole. He gets pulled from this hole. He cries to God for help, and God heals him. And there's truths in there that we need to cling to. And one of them is when you cry out to God, he absolutely hears you. We've ascribed that. We've looked at that quality of God the last couple of weeks. When you walk into the Psalms, there's this always this cry for help in a lot of places. And, and there's that reality that God always hears us that is helpful. It's encouraging. It's restorative. But to know that God responds. And in verse 2, you should know that David writes this with some perspective. We don't know that he was immediately healed. We don't know how long it lasted. In fact, later he talks about the anger lasting for a moment. Weeping, tearing for a night. You get the sense David was in the hole for a while. But God carried him out. In verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. 
Sheol being the place of death. From a very dark place, you restored me to life from amongst those who go down to the pit. And David puts again this word picture of God bringing him up out of this dark place and restoring him to life. And, and, and this is the picture you see. That, that God takes David from a hole, H-O-L-E, and makes him whole, W-H-O-L-E. He takes him from a hole, this place that's dark and cavernous that has no hope. We can't see the end of it. And he makes him whole, W-H-O-L-E. He completes him, he restores him, he brings him back to life. And again, isn't that just the picture of the gospel? For all of us, not just me, all of us are sinners. And in our sin, we find ourselves in a hole. We find ourselves separated from God, turning to things that won't help us, won't satisfy, won't meet our needs. And Jesus reels us up and grants us salvation in his name and gives us life. It's a very picture of salvation. And that moves David in verse 4 and 5 to move from personal praise, God, I want to rejoice you for what you've done in my life, to corporate praise. God, we're going to rejoice you for what you've done in my life. Because it's true for all of us. And corporately, David says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Literally, those who belong to him. And give thanks to his holy name. Hey guys, let's all get together. Let's worship this king. Let's worship our God because of what he's done. And verse 5 probably the verse that most of you would know from this psalm, for his anger is but for a moment. We should pause for just a moment. His anger is but for a moment. And let's not miss the reality that our sin angers God. Our sin my sin angers God. See, we can, quick, we can move so quickly that we skip some of the realities of, of the Bible, some of the realities of teaching, and think that our sin is just, well, it's just taken care of. It's totally forgotten. It's not that big a deal. And we miss the reality that our sin angers a holy and righteous God. That's actually the part of the thrust of this passage. You can't study this passage and not start to take to heart some of your own sin. And if our anger displeases God, are we in tune with that? Are we in tune with that? Do we take time, as in Psalm 139, that it's coming to us in a couple of weeks, to stop and say, oh Lord, search my heart. Find anything in me that's not righteous. God, point out my sin that it might be before me. 
Do we take the time to stop and consider those things? Because the whole thrust of this psalm is God redeeming David out of a situation caused by his sin. God disciplines him, which on some aspect we go, we read and we follow. But if we're not in tune with the reality of our own sin or the reality that God might actually discipline us for our own sin, then we think this is about David and not about us. And the minute we start taking Bible passages and making about other people and not about us, we miss the point. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. About a week ago, my youngest, who I'll refer to again here in a moment, decided it was a great idea to flush an entire roll of toilet paper down the toilet at once. Now you should know up front, her daddy was angry. My anger lasted for a moment. I spanked her. I put her in her crib. She cried for a while. I went back into her as a good father would. I put her on my knees and hugged her. And we walked through and talked about it. Claire, when you make decisions that dishonor and dis- your mommy and daddy, you choose sin. And we're stepping into your lives to try to show you that there are consequences to sin. Now, I've got a two-year-old, and I love her as a daddy would. And you know my father in heaven loves me the same way? It's the same picture. I'm not going to look at Claire later today and say, Claire, last week you flushed a roll of toilet paper. You're a moron. (laughs) No. My favor lasts for a lifetime. I'm going to love that sweet little girl the day she dies. Then we're going to run with her to Jesus when we get to heaven. She's my sweet little one. But her sin angers her father. And it angers me because I love her so much. And I have so much better for her. And just like her, David carries on, weeping may tarry for the night. There's a time when we pay a consequence. There's a time when you feel a separation. There's a time when you feel hurt. You feel anxiousness. You feel disappointment. But joy comes with the morning. God's love comes in overwhelmingly. It's a picture in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That the mercy of God is new every single morning. One of the great prayers we pray as we parent our children is just the reality that as the Israelites would go up to pick up manna every day, that God gave them exactly what they needed to make it through that day. And God knew the days that they were going to have long, hard walks. And God knew the days that would be simple and easy and short. And God provided for them abundantly for the hard ones. And he provided for them abundantly on the short ones. Always giving them exactly what they needed. 
And when they blew it one day, God didn't look at them the next and take it out on them. God carried them through. His mercy is new every morning. So friends, if you are walking in sin now, if sin is owning you, if it's wreaking havoc in your life, step out of it. Trust his mercies. Step away from it a little bit. And trust that though his anger may last for a night, there's favor for a lifetime. The joy comes in the morning. And Paul puts all of these things, these little challenges in perspective in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, when he says this so truth-packed verse, for this light momentary affliction is preparing uh, for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as you look at that verse, take into consideration how he uses word pictures even in Greek, which don't come as easily as they do in Hebrew. For this light, it's simple. It's easy. This momentary, it's short, it's quick. Affliction. This hardship that you're walking through, whether you caused it or not, is preparing us for an eternal weight. Eternal. It will last forever. Wait, it's got tremendous heft. And we're talking about the glory of God, and it's beyond all comparison. Paul puts into perspective this challenge that David might be walking through and says, for this light momentary affliction, it's just preparing you for God's glory. This, this little thing you're walking through, God's going to use it in your life. You don't have to figure it out today. You don't have to figure it out tomorrow. Somewhere you just look up and you just trust that your daddy's in charge and he loves you and he's going to take good care of you and he's going to meet your needs because he's a good father. And David, having worshipped God and ascribed the whole nation to worship God because of who he was, now starts to walk us through his fall. And you see that in verse 6. You see how David found himself in a pit. That's how I end up in pits. Verse 6, David says this, But as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. I said in my prosperity, I was doing really well. Notice how biblical authors use pronouns. Notice that they're always significant. Just as it can be significant when you or I use pronouns. As for me, I said, I shall never be moved. You start to see this picture of David standing on his own. This picture of David acting like he can do it himself. This picture of David where it's all about him. The world orbiting around him and what he wants. And it becomes about confidence and it becomes about pride. And it becomes about what he can accomplish in his flesh. And friends, when we reach the pinnacle of pride, please know that that's sin. And that a good and loving God, a good and loving father, won't tolerate that from us. 
he'll happily knock us off our block. Happily. As he does with David. David wants to do it by himself. And again, I'm reminded of my two-year-old who consistently says, no, daddy, I do it. And that makes me consider the number of times in my life when I look up to heaven and say, no, daddy, I do it. When I walk through things and I want to make it about me or how I can do it in my own flesh or my own accomplishments or my own authority or my own skills or my own gifts, how easy it is for me to realize that I think I'm strong without realizing that my hope is in a strong father. My strength is in a strong father. And David starts to put this realization together in verse 7. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. It was your favor. It was you that propped me up. You made my mountain stand strong. And it reminds me of the illustration I heard years ago about a turtle on a fence post. They say in Texas, if you see a turtle on a fence post, there's only one thing you know for sure, and that's he didn't get there by himself. Somebody had to put him there. And that's more true for me than I like to think, and it's more true for all of us than probably we'd like to admit. It's God's favor that carries us. It's God's favor that holds us together. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. And consequently, when you hid your face, I was dismayed. When, when, Paul, when David gives himself over to pride, God pulls back his favor. He turns his gaze, and David feels the weight of that, and it's devastating. See, this is that moment where you got to appreciate that your sin angers God. Otherwise, you don't know this moment in your own life. This is a Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 moment. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who lo- whom he loves and as a father, the son in whom he delights. That God is a loving Father who chastens us, who disciplines us, who reproofs us, who tells us when we're wrong. And if you should be led to believe that's only in the Old Testament, it's not. The author of Hebrews further recites that passage word for word in chapter 12 and then adds this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and light live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment of all discipline seems painful and rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
And you have to see this picture that the writer of Hebrews clearly had been reading his book of Psalms. Clearly had been reading the book of Proverbs. Because he starts to paint this picture that God has the right to say no to us. He has the right to challenge us and to reproof us. And if this isn't something that you experience, it may be because you're not asking for it. It may be because you're not pursuing him in this intimate way to dig into his word, to let all scripture get into your life, to train you, to rebuke you, so that you could be, have a perfect image of his son. Because that's what sanctification is. That's why we pursue holiness. So that when we walk around, people see a perfected image of Jesus in our lives. We represent him better. Unless you think that's just a proverb and it's just mentioned in Hebrews, Jesus also says it in the book of Revelation. Chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says this, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Friends, when you fall into sin based on pride or any other reason, God notices. God is keenly aware. What the scriptures would say to you is be zealous and repent. If you're walking in sin right now, stop and repent. We have a good and a loving father who might discipline you for a moment. There might absolutely be consequences for your sin. But joy comes in the morning. Your daddy will pick you up and put you on his knee and he'll restore you as he did David, as I do my kids. It's for the way a loving father treats his children. God wants to restore you from sin. He wants to bring you out of it. He wants to do something awesome in your life. Be zealous and repent. The words of Jesus. We find his prayer from the pit in verse 8, 9, and 10. And it's pretty pitiful. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And we find David in desperation praying to God. And to be fair, sometimes all we've got is desperation. And God absolutely answers that. You see that in this passage. But David starts throwing out this desperation. He starts throwing out these words. Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? He starts to make these comments, these these thrown out statements that these are the things that sometimes when we say to God, we feel guilty about later. But please take note, this is in your Bible. This is in the inspired word of God. God was clearly okay with David praying this to him because he imprinted it for you. So that you'd be able to read it, study it, and he wanted his nation to say it regularly. Does God need David? No. 
Will God survive without David's worship and without his testimony? Absolutely. Sometimes I think I'm more important than I am. And God could put us in our place. I've often joked that the last couple of chapters of Job are there for a reason. We should read them regularly. So we can be reminded that God is sovereign and he's absolutely in control. And yet, he's a good and loving father who restores his kids. So even when David gives a desperate plea and calls out, God hears him and God responds to him. And you see that in verses 11 and 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and you've clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David now celebrates God for his restoration. David celebrates that God would bring him out of this hole and make him whole, W-H-O-L-E. That his mourning clothes were exchanged and, and instead he put on gladness. And he worshiped God and would never be silent about what God did. As you walk through Psalm 30, you see this picture where David owns that he absolutely blew it. He fell into sin, and God disciplined him for it. And it hurt, and it didn't feel good. And yet God restored him out of that. So as we walk through this psalm this morning, the questions we have to dig into for our own is are we aware of our own sin? Does God have the right to call us out and to say no? And if so... How might he do that? Because if God's going to discipline us, it's going to be because we're walking with some awareness of our sin. We're aware of the places where God has said, Ben, you're out of bounds. Ben, that's not a good place for you. Ben, that's not a healthy place for you to hang out. And God brought restoration as a good father would. So as we walk through Psalm 30, I don't know what hole, H-O-L-E, you might find yourself in this morning. I don't know if it's because of your own doing or because any number of a litany of circumstances that are going on in this world right now where sin is running rampant. But know this. God the Father is in control. Jesus, his Son, will reign forever and ever and ever. And when you call his name... He will answer you. And when you ask for healing, he will make you whole. Let me pray for us. Fathers, we've walked through these psalms. We're reminded that you're sovereign and that you're good and that you are in control. And because you're our sovereign Lord, because you're our king, you can say no to us. You can reprove us. You can point out the inconsistencies in our lives. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be blind to that. I pray that we wouldn't ignore it. God, I pray that as a church, you'd point out our sins to us because you're a loving father. And you'd do it in a way that would bring you glory 
Father, it might bring weeping from us. It might bring anger and hurt. But Father, you're going to do it to restore us so that we'll see even more what a loving Father you are for disciplining your kids. Father, we love you, and we're amazed at your redemptive powers. That you even get us out of situations we put ourselves in. Father, thank you so much for your abundant grace that was manifested in Jesus Christ. That in his name, our sins can be forgiven. When we put our hope and our trust in him, Father, we become your kids. For that, we give you thanks. Amen.